Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 14. Maybe it's not written into your role, right? When you were in that interview process and you applied for, you know, G League strength coach role, you probably never thought that a, a line item or a bullet on that was to be like kind of a regular rebounder for guys. All of a sudden you're in that environment, you recognize there's just limited bodies, right? And to, and to really service the players and be a great teammate for what that organization needs, you step into that type of role. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Jesse Wright, veteran NBA strength and conditioning coach. Uh, we got the opportunity to connect a couple times this year at the NSCA Coaches Conference and recently at the NBA Combine. Jesse, welcome. Eric, thank you so much for having me on. I, I've been a fan of this uh, podcast for many years, and it's uh, I'm humbled and honored to finally be a guest. Yeah, it's a lot of fun doing this podcast. I joke with a lot of people that coming into this job, I never once aspired to be a podcast host. Uh, you, you Like many coaching opportunities, you get thrown into the fire. And I think one great thing that's come from it is that you get to connect with a lot of great people, a lot of professionals doing great work in the field. And uh, it just brings a lot of experiences full circle that when I'm out at events and connecting with people and just being able to rehash those for, for everybody listening in. So uh, typical podcast fashion, Jesse, just want you to jump in and uh, tell your story a little bit for our listeners. How'd you get into the profession, into the MBA, and what are you up to now? Yeah, so I would, would love the, the, the chance to. Um, started off, you know, in the profession, my first, I, I was the probably prototypical undersized high school football player that, uh, that got really interested in formal program design and strength and conditioning from uh, competing on a powerlifting team in the offseason in high school. So it was a master's deadlift champion that, you know, kind of led the, the club, the powerlifting club. And it was my first chance to, to train under somebody that knew what they're doing and got me super interested in the program design, the nutritional component of strength and conditioning. And that led me to want to pursue it uh, as, a, as a major. Uh, so exercise science degree from Temple University and got engaged with the strength and conditioning staff there because I worked in another role with the football and basketball teams there as a student manager. And that's kind of what got my, my feet wet with uh, being in a collegiate division one weight room and seeing how things operate from how they manage schedules and led athletes to you know, we were by the book, multi-set, periodized Olympic lifting. We were on the platform two days a week with the football team. And I learned every aspect of coaching clean grip and wide grip Olympic lifts and long-term athlete development programming and periodized model. And it was everything I wanted at that point in time to stay engaged with uh, athletics after, you know, making the decision not to play in college. And uh, that led to an internship with the Philadelphia Eagles for my degree. And I spent uh, nearly a full year with that team as a first an intern and then an assistant strength and conditioning coach. And that was awesome because it was uh, my first exposure, my only exposure to working within a high intensity training program. 
right? So they were single set to failure. And at that time, uh, about half the NFL uh, subscribed to that philosophy. And I, I learned from two incredible mentors and coaches, Mike Wolf and Tom Canavy at that point. And I still thank them to this day for what they taught me about that philosophy. And then they also presented me with an opportunity to go over to NFL Europe. And again, this is going back to the year 2000 minor league system for the NFL at the time. And uh, I, I was the head strength coach for the team in Barcelona for a season. So that was my first opportunity to be a head strength and conditioning coach, which was great, right? And all the challenges that come with running your program for the very first time, which <laughs> had very little to do with writing a program and everything to do with, you know, leadership and, and, uh, and that component of being a, a, a reputable coach. And then I went to Hofstra University. I was the head strength coach for the football team there for a season. And uh, that ended with, a, I was out of strength and conditioning for a year. I worked for a sporting goods company. And then I landed with a, a private sports training organization, which had as many as four training centers outside of Philadelphia. It was called Summit Sports Training Center. And I had a bunch of different roles there in my time from just on the floor performance coach to like a general manager type role overseeing operations of a couple centers. And then they also negotiated a couple high level strength and conditioning contracts. Uh, one of which was with St. Joseph's university. And again, this was in the, the 2000s, mid 2000s. Uh, and one of which was with the Philadelphia 76ers. So both of those organizations hired this company as their strength and conditioning resource and to, instead of their own full-time staff. Uh, and I served in those consultant roles in different capacities. That's how I got introduced to the Philadelphia 76ers. So I was a, a strength and conditioning consultant for that team for four years while working for the other company. And then the team picked me up full time after four years. So all told with the Sixers was 14 total years. Nine of those were as the head strength coach, and then five were in a role titled uh, Director of Performance Science, which kind of bridged the gap with strength and conditioning and wearable tech and sports science and kind of had a big role in our team nutrition and uh, reported to a, um, an incredible sports scientist, David Martin, and learned a lot about that evolving area of you know professional sports these days and everything. It was a, a tremendous opportunity to work in a growing staff, both medical and performance. And for the last two years, uh, just been doing a number of different consulting projects uh, for different organizations, all somehow tied to high performance sport, uh, but a couple different, you know, descriptions, couple facility design projects, um, still engaged with the NBA combine, fortunately, and um, did another combine over in South Africa uh, for a private organization, which brought together a, a number of different sports to um, to assess different athletes and their uh, their opportunities to maybe get um, scholarship opportunities at, at American University. So uh, it's been a mixed bag and radically different for the last two years than working for team sports, which was you know the first two decades of my career. Uh, but it's been a fun challenge. Yeah. There's a lot there I want to follow up on and ask you about. One thing I really like just hearing your background from where you started is there's a little bit of old school in there and there's a little bit of new school, you know, all the way from powerlifting, you know, in the early days, just kind of finding your interest and in, in getting into typical college strength and conditioning environment with Olympic lifting, but then all the way up through a role as a director of performance science, integrating technology, sports science concepts. And so you've really worked across the full spectrum of the field. Uh, and one thing that's interesting, just knowing your role and involvement with the MBSCA is that 
you've done a lot to advance that organization over your time in the NBA. And it's really a lot different now getting into the NBA, NBA strength and conditioning than, than the path you really carved out for yourself of getting in through a consultant role, such a unique path into the NBA. You know, a lot of people might be surprised to hear that. Uh, I think it's also really cool. You had that, uh, NFL Europe experience. Not everybody Mm -hmm. knows that that was a thing nowadays. Uh, that was cool. I remember seeing those games on TV, uh, you know, the time of year when you wouldn't really be expecting to be watching football and things like that. So just really cool background. You've done a lot in the field. Uh, talk about the MBSCA and just how that organization has evolved in your time, mm-hmm. your involvement. You were the president of that organization during some really pivotal years and just, you know, what that organization means for the MBA strength coaches today. Sure. Yeah, I, I actually enjoy talking about this. It, it's kind of a, a bit of a history lesson, and I'm, gosh, so grateful and thankful to be a part of that and you know, served on some of the executive boards in, in different capacities. Uh, I think it's first important to note um, and give a nod again. I, I, I got into the MBA in 2006, 2007, and uh, a small group, four individuals took it upon themselves to kind of reform Uh, a new version of the Strength Coaches Association in the NBA uh, and have to pay them their due. Daniel Shapiro, Sean Wendell, uh, Mike Curtis, and Keith D'Amelio, who were all full-time strength coaches in the league at the time, and were were younger and uh, all learned under great veteran uh, strength coaches that that led them at one point, but took it upon themselves to reform and and structure the association. And in the, I guess it was around 2007, 2008, and secured an attorney and really, really um, laid a foundation and and built some real structure to um, to the organization that exists today. Uh, so it starts with them, and, and Daniel served as the president for those those very first two years, and then passed the presidency off to Sean Wendell. I, I, I talk about these first three. I, I ended up being served as the third president uh, in that newly formed association, and um, each each of the presidents, and, and probably even to this point in time and everything, kind of identified different targets, right? And some of it was forming the association and developing a um, a, a mission statement and a vision statement. And what does this association want to be? What do we want to do for the members? And again, I would think going back to those years, you probably had 20 to 30 members total, maybe not even representation from uh, every NBA team in those early years, all the way up to now, where I would guess it's probably 60 or 70 members strong, maybe even more. And, you know, with two and three uh, members from each team, maybe even more with assistants and G League coaches and everything. And the growth is just something really, really to be proud of. Um, but those early years, right, I go back to Sean taking over the presidency. He secured a, a really remarkable attorney that did wonders for uh, some of the foundational components that I think any association would want to provide for their members and pass it off to me where we identified we wanted to do at least. Um, build some type of, um, call it a rainy day fund, some opportunity for a pension or something to um, take care of the members that, that you know, put so much time into their roles with their NBA teams and then dedicate time to the, to the combine and, you know, any type of initiatives as part of the uh, association. So we were able to lay the foundation for that uh, in addition to 
the first, again, this was under my time as presidency along and gosh, taking the, the lead from our attorney at the time, Michael Goldberg, um, where we were able to establish the very first structured partnerships, right? One of which was with the NSCA, right? Scotty Caulfield and I worked on, on that agreement together. Uh, the other one was with Gatorade and the other one was with Adidas at the time. And that represented the first kind of corporate partnerships ever for the association, which represented some, some real income, some real funds coming in, in addition to the vendor show that, that happens at the NBA Combine this year. So I say all of that because there's a very real business element to an association like that. There's business operations, right? And we're all strength and conditioning coaches all coming from our biomechanics and our physiology and our motor learning. And we don't know a whole lot about the business side of anything, really. We're just not taught that, at least formally anyway. So you really lean on some people and some some more knowledgeable individuals to help guide that. And it really is. It's it's a part time job for the time that you serve on those boards. And again, you know, I'll, I'll call out Daniel Shapiro again, who serves as the current president, and was also named NBA Strength Coach of the Year just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, for uh, a lot of the dedication and the passion that he puts puts into advancing that association. Uh, and it's a lot of time. There's there's a lot going on, and it's even more advanced now at this point in time. What, fifteen years into its development, I might have that that. Uh, that number wrong but uh yeah it's a it's a lot to put into it but it's all for the benefits of the membership and to 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 grow an organization where you feel like there's real unity there's real connection with your equivalents your colleagues and your network of strength coaches within the you know within the nba it's funny you you mentioned the business aspects of running an association and that's something that unless you have a lot of coaching experience, maybe in the private sector, on the business side of things, you you may not be familiar with the tools, skills, needs mm -hmm. of just uh, being able to hold events on an annual basis, being able to uh, mm -hmm. have resources and, mm -hmm. and put them out there and have a website, maintain that. Uh, you know, one thing, and I'll relate this from my perspective, you know, when I came on board with the NSCA, we are a nonprofit organization as well. And that's something that as a coach in the field for many years, I didn't really hear that perspective communicated to the coaching world that the NSCA supports coaches, but it's a nonprofit organization. And being that it's a nonprofit organization, there's a lot of involvement from members and volunteers and committees and task force groups that really are the decision factors that drive our organization. We have board of director uh, elections going on right now. Um, those are longstanding committee members, volunteers that make that ballot. And mm -hmm. they elevate through really a pathway of involvement through the organization, a lot like uh, you were there at the early stages, but a lot like your members do, you know, working with the MBSCA. And a lot of people listening in may not realize the NSCA has connections with these really advocacy groups for strength and conditioning coaches at the professional level. Coming in from the baseball side, we had the Professional Baseball Strength and Conditioning Coaches Society. There's the MBSCA for the NBA, SCAF for the NHL. Uh, and then we have a professional football group. These are such impactful groups and a great way for our field to really in a way, learn from the best as we, as you know, we might think people that really have that, that elite sport experience and want to share it 
And just one perspective I'll bring from the baseball side to this conversation is there's a lot of coaches working at the professional level that uh, are looking for that avenue to share their experience and knowledge, just like you are, Jesse. And uh, and it it is really great to hear that because I think if you work in college strength and conditioning or another area of the field, you may not even realize that these groups for coaches exist. And mm -hmm. uh, no, it really is exciting. You talked about Dan Shapiro. Uh, he's the current president. I think he's the second time president. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, yes. And maybe a second time coach of the year award winner for the NBA. The, uh, the, the and, only in the history of that award, the only two time winner of that award. Yeah. And he's a, he's an RSCC starry coach been doing this over mm -hmm. 20 years, which uh, when he, I think when he applied for that, I, I joked with, joked with him because I was like, I didn't uh, think he'd been, been around that long, just, you know, yeah. but he, he, he got a real early start, uh, yes, he did. but it's really, it's really exciting. Just, you know, being involved with the NBA combine, uh, seeing what you all do, the fact that strength coaches are not only involved with just workouts and uh, during the season, but the scouting mm -hmm. process and uh, yeah. funneling that information to front office members, just another area that strength coaches have value within professional organizations. So I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm excited that, that we're talking about this, you know, uh, Gatorade was a sponsor for your session at uh, Coaches Conference mm -hmm. in 2022. It was a pre-con session. We were excited to have you. Why don't you break down mm -hmm. some of that for us? Yeah, I, again, just what another tremendous opportunity. So thankful to Gatorade for considering me and certainly the NSCA for um for ha for having me speak there and and in the position that that it was early in the conference and everything that's a that's a fun spot to be in um yeah so the 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 topic and the theme it's the one that I'm kind of most passionate about talking about with a, with a couple of side projects that I have going on right now my my passion projects right they, that that keep you going when you're not working on the the technical stuff is just this concept of interpersonal skills right that that you know who you are as a person and how you connect with athletes and colleagues and leadership and Gus is this whole bucket of those skills that we know are are, are critical to being a successful coach. Uh, and that's what I enjoy talking about. That's what I'm most passionate about, passionate about to complement all of the amazing technical speakers that are out there. And they were lined up at that conference in particular. So uh, what I what I chose to talk about, what, what the representatives from Gatorade and I kind of agreed on was this um, this intercultural sensitivity model, which is, you know, it's a it's a sociological model. And it was a. a a bit of a risk in going at that topic, right? Because you have a room and a world full of strength coaches watching online and you you stand in front of them and you talk about a sociology topic. And I, I can guess everybody's looking at you kind of crooked and, you know, where is he going with this? But where it came from was a little bit of research for, for my book in the last 18 months that I put out. And what I came across was this, this really interesting model that I thought as soon as I came across it um, had real application to high performance sport. And it's called the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. It has six different stages. Uh, American sociologist named Milton Bennett created it back in the eighties. And in its, in its original form, it basically just kind of describes how we all receive and interpret cultural variance. So we're all a product of 
the people that we grew up around, the geography that we grew up in, and all of the culture that we were exposed to our whole life. And the model then describes what happens when we're presented with something different. How do we react to that? And many people don't react well to cultural difference, right? If you're kind of rooted in what it is you always did, and there's this brand new something that's presented to you, a lot of times there's resistance to that. And we see that in high performance sport. That's where, that's where I, I drew the parallel was that we are always as strength coaches, we're tasked with presenting new stuff new opportunities to get better to athletes, whether it's progressions on a, on a movement pattern or whether it's technology or a new supplement we're, we're reading about that we think can be helpful or something. It's, it's literally part of our role. I don't know if it's one we'd ever write into a job description, but we do it every single day. Uh, and we need to be good at it. And we need to be prepared when people are resistant to those new ideas that we believe can be helpful. We genuinely feel that it can benefit someone or the team, or we probably wouldn't bring it to the table. So what do you do when people resist that? And uh, I think the model describes uh, how to treat those uh, those people and those examples and those cases fairly well. And that was the that was the nature of the talk is right. How can you take those six stages, which go from you know the the most resistant stage denial, where somebody goes, I don't even want to talk about that new thing, right? You want to build in, you want to tether a gym aware a gym aware to a trap bar, right? I don't want my velocity measured. I ain't doing it, right? And, you know, that's a real scenario, right? Or, or take some other piece of technology, right? Yeah. The, the one I used in the talk was wearable tech, right? Uh, built into the collective bargaining agreement in the NBA is they, they don't have to wear the, the technology that you present to them. It's optional. So how do you manage that situation, right? And we did have some older veterans in my time with the team that, that resisted and uh, chose not to wear it. And that's okay. Um, but how do you handle those situations all the way up to the final stage, you know, these adaptation integration or stages five and six, where they've embraced the new idea, whoever it is that might've been resistant to it at first, they've accepted the new idea, your presentation of it. And they may even be so compliant at that point that they become advocates and they start talking about it. Right. And again, that's the, you know, the, the, the fun example is the, you know, the veteran person, the veteran athlete that maybe was a poor eater early in his career. Maybe you saw him as a rookie and he was the definition of like fried food and desserts and, you know, poor pregame meals, maybe he walks in with a McDonald's bag or something. And then, you know, throughout the course of his career, he realizes he just can't sustain performance and health eating that way. So he changes his, he, he adopts the new way, changes his patterns, and he may figuratively or literally put his arm around the new rookie and go, hey, man, learn from me, right? You don't want to eat this way. There's, there's real benefit from, you know, listening to the dietitian, some of the, the, uh, the patterns and the strategies that she or he is introducing to you and everything. And let me talk to you about how it helped me. And he becomes an advocate for the new, the new way. Uh, so that was the topic of the talk for sure. Um, got some good feedback, right? But like every presentation, right? You never hear from the people that didn't like it. <laughs> so maybe there was a room full of people that were like, yeah, okay, take that, take that with you, go somewhere else with it. But, um, but the people that, you know, I was able to engage with and, you know, the debriefs and all that stuff, uh, it was, it was fairly well received, I think. Don't worry. Yeah. I'll grill you here and give you a few points now. Uh, just, we'd, uh, love it. we'd love I it. You know, what you're talking about is adaptability of coaches, and that's something that comes up often as an area that coaches need to be adaptable. We need to be, and, and that 
there's a lot of shades of gray there. If you're working at the professional level, you gave a really good example on the tech side, uh, being adaptable to our facilities is one that a lot of coaches can connect with. You know, you can't just come in with the, here's my program all the time. It's, you may not have that facility when you, when you get a job or, um, you, I remember at Springfield college, we were warming teams up in the dorm lounge next to the, to the weight room. I mean, we didn't have every piece of equipment we needed to get that done, but the goal was to just move them through and get them into the weight room. So being adaptable. And that's what I want to ask you, what steps should coaches take to really identify where they're at in just being adaptable and how do they, how do they move along that continuum so that they have an open mind when they need it, but also can stay proactive and engaged with when, when they need the gas pedal, when they need to push like we do as coaches, I think there's a, a real balance there in coaching where we need to be planners. We need to come in with a plan A, plan B, plan C, but, but as you know, sometimes we get to that plan Y or plan Z and mm -hmm. that can wear on us a little bit. How, how do yeah. coaches navigate that? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the first part of your question. I, I, I think all evolution comes first from recognition, right? If we're going to grow and develop, right, it starts with recognizing the areas that we may need to grow and develop or, or, or areas that could potentially be developed. So I think with that in mind, starting with this idea that there are many different potential successful solutions to most situations, I think is just a good mindset to have that our current method of doing things is just one of possible many, one of many possible solutions. And that's actually rooted in the, in the model where there's six stages, but uh, Dr. Bennett bucketed them into uh, two little three stage packages. And the first was ethno ethnocentric, where you believe your, your way, your culture, the one that is re your reality is the way everybody should view the world right? Those three stages, right? The way I see things is the way everybody generally could or should view it. And then you move to the, the, the second three, and that's ethno-relative. And that's where you generally are wired. You just enter every day going, your current view is just one of many possible solutions. And I think if we can live our lives on that side of the continuum, I think it just sets us up for this adaptability that you're talking about. Um, again, I'll, I'll go back to my 22, 23 year old version of myself where <laughs> uh, I talked to veteran guys, maybe, maybe you too, where you, you leave your undergrad or you leave your first strength and conditioning experience and you're like, cool, I know it all. This is exactly how to train athletes. <laughs> and that's what I thought, you know, spent two and a half years under a wonderful, like two, again, coaches I consider mentors, Chris Hudak and Scott Fitzsimmons, and they were rooted in multi-set period, periodized Olympic lifting. And that's, you know, and that's what I was reading in the NSC journals at the time, NSCA journal, you know, back to Tudor Bampa and all the early uh, journal articles and everything. That's what I read about. And that's what I thought was the way. And then you leave there and again, go right to the Philadelphia Eagles, the second organization I was fortunate enough to work for. And the entire weight room, like you didn't even have a squat rack in it, right? With Smith machine, right? But it was a high, it was a philosophy that was rooted in machine-based work. A lot of Nautilus, not a lot of hammer strength. And it was a very popular philosophy at the time, single set to failure. Um, 
and it was, you know, can't call it the opposite, but a radically different philosophy on how to improve athletes. And guess what? That, guess what? That one worked too. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? In terms of injury risk reduction, in terms of performance enhancement, everything, we saw huge benefits, huge gains from our guys with that philosophy as well when it was implemented. So it's like all of a sudden that was like my my moment, call it a tipping point, call it an aha. And it's like, gosh, there's a lot more out there than what I thought I knew even a year ago. Right. You know, the, the young, arrogant version of myself thinking I knew everything. So I use that example because to, to answer your question, it's like once you understand that there's so many different ways out there to successfully navigate a strength and conditioning program or to run a warm up or to uh, implement a, some type of, you know, objective monitoring for, you know, within a, a weight room setting or something like that. Now you're wired to go, OK. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing about new things. It doesn't mean you have to accept every single one of them, but I think at least open to learning about what's out there because there's just so much gosh. And, and we know our, our field is moving so fast all the time. If you want to take it in a technology direction, great, but just from a learning perspective with you, you know, the, the online certifications that are there and, you know, you got so many reputable coaches put pumping out content and maybe it's like, maybe it's uh, coaching cues or, or, um, you know, just how to, you know, a new perspective on how to, you know, coach a hip hinge or something, something like that. There's just always new things to learn. And, um, and when you're wired with the mindset that you're open and, and, uh, uh readily, uh, available to kind of, to kind of take those in, I think, uh, I think that's a successful strategy. This talk on adaptability. I think it connects with the philosophical side, you know, what's your coaching philosophy, philosophy, mm -hmm. but it also connects on the training side. Like you're talking about with technology or in professional sports where you're not these players first strength coach, they may come in mm -hmm. with thoughts, ideas, they're, they're adults and you're dealing with adult decision makers in a training setting. So being adaptable really, uh, really works across everything from our planning stages to how we implement sessions on a daily basis, how we, how we uh, make the decision to scrap what the plan was and move on to the next thing. Those are, uh, you know, a lot of experiential learning, obviously a part of the strength and conditioning profession. I want to ask you about your work and you mentioned this a little bit with high performance, but your work as part of interdisciplinary teams, probably mm -hmm. when you started, uh, there weren't as many staff members, dietitians, chiropractors, physical therapists, they've added athletic trainers and the, you know, just the number of positions on the performance team that are in the, in the mix today. How does the sure. strength coach navigate that? What's your experience with that? Yeah, uh, the personnel in medical and performance are, are, are growing everywhere, right? Staffs are adding people to, um, provide more maybe personalized care and attention to athletes, certainly at the pro level, I know. And I, I, I say this all the time. I've said it in many different forums for my first seven years with the, with the team, with the 76ers, we, we were four deep in medical and performance, right? It was two athletic trainers, a full-time soft tissue therapist and myself, the only strength coach. And then fast forward five years from that point in time, which would have been my year 11 or 12 ish, uh, we had as many as 16 or 17 in that same department. 
and we brought on more strength and conditioning coaches and we finally added some full-time physical therapists to the staff. We added people at the G league level, um, you know, the, the growing sports science element and some, some, uh, director, director, uh, leadership as well. And that, you know, that, that brings about, you know, the, you go back to the previous model and you're just so busy and you are more it's more of a generalist model where you have to wear many different hats throughout the course of the day and you're 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 caught up in doing the job for 15 to it was 15 athletes at the time uh very rarely do you have time to argue or have long-term you know big long meetings at the start of the day or anything because there's always guys coming in there's always something to do and i remember those years many many times going man i wish i had more time to do this if I had just a little more time, I could grow this area. Maybe it's musculoskeletal screening, or maybe it's like team nutrition, which obviously has had a lot of strength and conditioning coaches wear along with, you know, maybe a dietitian consultant or a, um, somebody else that provides that, that level of uh, oversight counsel. So now you fast forward to that larger group and you've gone from generalist to specialist. And now with, with many people on staff, you have a very targeted role, right? It's now much more refined to where you have to play a role on a larger team and do that very well. And with a growing staff, obviously there are, you know, just like we had incredibly smart people and firepower, you start to bring in these, these experts in their fields. And uh, the, again, our, our team was physical therapists, physiotherapists that came in from international countries. Um, we added a couple soft tissue therapists. You have a sports science element. You've added strength and conditioning coaches with, with new philosophies and, and, and visions and, um, and uh, ideas on how to, you know, how to implement programming with our guys. And you've added athletic trainers and interns, right? You had lower level staff as well. And now it's like, how do you share information, right? And that high performance word collaboration, right? Make sure that uh, all that you're doing, right, is if you have your morning meetings and you're talking about the day's events, maybe some of the, the loading recommendations that we pulled from the data and some of the subjective anecdotal reports that you're getting from players relative to fatigue or, you know, personal issues or cognitive stress or anything you would get from those guys. And you pull all that information together and you come up with a, a medical performance plan for the day. And, and you didn't always, we didn't always agree on all of that, right? You have these professional arguments in those meetings, which I think are necessary uh, within a high performance environment to get a, a really strong end result. But I think the hard part is, is making sure that you arrive at a, a, a collaborative conclusion in those meetings, that when you leave the room as medical and performance, you're, you're, you're giving a common message, right? And our message normally goes to athletes, certainly, and it goes to coaches, and then it goes to front office members, um, and have your, you know, thumb wrestle it out with any of the professional disagreements in the meeting, but then leave with a common message. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. That, that's a challenge because you have strong opinions and you have very, um, uh, again, knowledgeable opinions uh, about, you know, it could be a return to play case, could be, you know, uh, again, a, a loading or intensity recommendation that we would provide on a training day to the coaches staff or something like that. You know, we had a lot of those. Um, and, and it takes a while too. it takes some time to get on the same page. But I think when we started hitting on all cylinders, you, you, you saw that you got a you got a good feel for how people worked and what they felt strongly about. And, um, you know, and, and 
And I think with uh, people that are wired to want to, you know, work within teams and have successful outcomes uh, within kind of gathering a number of different opinions and everything that, that it can be a successful environment, although difficult. Yeah, I think that's great perspective. And I think a good takeaway there is if you're not having those medical performance collaborative type meetings at your school institution, wherever, wherever you're listening from, that's something that might be worth exploring. We all have to have good relationships at the base level with our athletic trainers and our, and our head coaches, you know, in whatever sport mm -hmm. we're working in. Uh, you hear more terminology nowadays around performance audits and things, maybe more connected to the technology and sports science uh, monitoring side of things. Mm -hmm. And those are just really advancements of that concept of just getting together all the stakeholders that are caring for the athlete, everybody mm -hmm. putting the athlete first and trying to uh, you go back to what you said before, personalized care. I think that's something our field is challenged by a lot. We've been so trained in efficiency and meeting the needs of the team that it we're a little torn as to maybe what our role is in serving the individual versus the team as a whole. Um, another thing popped in my head when you were talking about that, you know, the generalist versus specialist, I think coaches need to be able to navigate both of those scenarios. In an example, you know, we're talking MBA, uh, great opportunity at the recent combine to meet a lot of G league coaches who they're not going to have as many resources in the minor leagues as they do, you know, all the way at, at the NBA level. And so being able to navigate that where it might be just you and an athletic trainer as a strength and conditioning mm -hmm. coach. And then a couple of years later, you get promoted to the NBA and you're part of this interdisciplinary team well, you're going to have a specific role. So that is, I mean, there's some, there's some career development progression to that. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, again, the, the G league strength coaches, I have gotten a chance to speak with and, and for representatives of many different teams uh, since that position kind of became a thing in the NBA. Those guys certainly first and foremost have the, you know, the kind of conventional role of a strength and conditioning coach, but they also may drive team vans and they also may plan logistics on the road and, you know, have to navigate, you know, getting players on a commercial flight and maybe they have to help out with laundry. And, you know, there's, there's a lot, you know, and again, that team nutrition aspect of ordering meals and everything, which is an incredibly high maintenance role that, that a lot of us have experienced. Um, yeah, just again, it's it's sort of a mentality. And I, I think it's like wired in, you know, how can I be the best teammate? And if you're in that level of role and that's what's required of you from an organization to, to not be resistant to that, like if it does, if you do see that there's limited personnel and you see everybody scrambling just to to, to rebound for players, you know, you have a, a shooting drill and there's limited staff that are surrounding a court and you have an athletic trainer and you might have just one or two development coaches and uh, one strength and conditioning coach. And maybe you have a physical therapist and, you know, maybe only one or two video guys. Well, to really run an effective shooting session, right? You need rebounders, right? That's what those guys are, you know, or you're just kind of wasting your time chasing down balls and everything. So um, 
maybe it's not written into your role, right? When you were in that interview process and you applied for, you know, G League strength coach role, you probably never thought that a, a line item or a bullet on that was to be like kind of a regular rebounder for guys or to be in an assistant coach's pocket to run, you know, to set screens for a screen and roll drill or something like that. But you know, all of a sudden you're in that environment, you recognize there's just limited bodies, right? And to, and to really service the players and be a great teammate for what that organization needs, you step into that type of role that you really never planned to have to do. But then you're like, okay, cool. That's one more thing that I should probably be open to doing with this organization. And then you may go to a completely different team. Maybe you elevate through the ranks and you're with the NBA team or you move over to another organization. And, you know, you could go to that and go, you might walk into a world and they go, hey, man, strength coaches don't, you, you don't have to do that here. Like, we don't need you on the court. We, we, we got you. We got you. you. You stay in your weight room, strength coach. <laughs> and That's that could funny. happen too. Right. So that, again, that's like cultural differences. Right. And and recognizing maybe where what opportunities provide you the best chance to be the teammate that that organization needs for you. Um, and it's different everywhere. But I think, again, I think it begins with a mindset and an open mind. That's a great story or great mm -hmm. perspective. And um, just to share a, a funny story, you know, G League of I went to a G League game a few years ago and, you know, you get the, get the roster when you walk in, I'm sitting down and I was high enough, up, uh, up in the stands where you don't really realize how tall people are. And I realized there was three, mm -hmm. seven footers on the court. <laughs> and I don't yep. think, I mean, I don't think I'd seen that in my entire life in any sport I've ever been a part of. So I had to go down yep. to court level just to see what that was all about. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. um, I think there's, uh, you know, talking about the G League, you see those jobs come up uh, in the field. You know, every mm -hmm. year there's a position or two open. And mm -hmm. for a young coach that's looking to get into professional basketball, those could be mm -hmm. great opportunities, uh, an opportunity for you to engage with the MBSCA coaches, um, guys and girls that have been around for, for a lot of years uh, doing this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people to learn from. Uh, I know from the NSCA standpoint, we really value uh, our relationship with the MBSCA. And uh, just to wrap things up, Jesse, what do you uh, what do you got going on right now? Um, what are what are some of the projects you're working on? Yeah, so um, just came off. Obviously, we, we got a chance to connect just just kind of uh, de debriefing from the NBA combine. Again, super fortunate and grateful um, to still stay involved with them, kind of in a consultant type role, um, reporting to Andrew Murray, who's um, involved with performance from a league standpoint for the league office, and um, still have a, uh, an advisory role for all of the strength and conditioning coaches of the league that implement all the testing and everything. So, you know, that event, we're still, you know, every, the data is still kind of fresh. Everybody's still picking through it online. And, you know, and that being a component to the whole entire evaluation process, which is kind of going from just before the combine starts early May, all the way up until the NBA draft. So, you know, the online, um, portal that the NBA built to view all the data and everything. Everybody's picking through that regularly and everything. So, so some questions still come through about our testing at that event and everything that, that, um, 
that you need to be need to be prepared to do that and then we'll do a full debrief on how the event went and everything and because we're always looking to to provide the highest level of service to the league for that event so so we still have those so so that's the big thing just tying that event up um well um currently consulting for a a recovery product so uh, helping them kind of get that off the ground. It, it's brand new. So there's a number of different meetings and, you know, serve on some weekly uh, calls with different teams and organizations that are interested in it. So that takes up some of the time. And then, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's one or two, again, this, this nature of potential consulting projects, right. Which, you know, you're, you're constantly kind of aware of what might be out there and, you know, can maybe putting your name in for some opportunities that you would like to be involved in, but it's more of a proposal type scenario. So there's a couple facility design projects out there that uh, aren't a lock right now, but, you know, certainly interested in maybe helping some organizations design some weight rooms and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. It kind of depends on the week and, you know, where I decide to spend my, my work hours each day. But it's a, again, I think I said it earlier, it's a, it's a radically different day than what I was used to for a long time, but it's a, it's a fun challenge for now. I like the, the project-based work. Sounds like a refreshing change of pace for you. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. So Jesse, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch social media or uh, best contact? Yeah. So social media wise, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, it's Jesse K. Wright is uh, the the name, the user account uh, involved in LinkedIn as well. So direct message on either one of those. I you know return messages in a, in a fair amount of time for sure. And uh, I have a website, Balance the Bar, again, all, all tied to, you know, interpersonal skills and high performance sport. And you could email that website. It comes to me directly. Uh, so those are probably the best ways to, to reach out and, you know, love talking shop and love receiving calls, whether it's young coaches or veteran guys that want to just kind of discuss the field and talk about evolution. And, you know, I, I, I welcome and, and, uh, enjoy those opportunities. So I, I would encourage anybody to reach out if you, if, uh, if you think it's a fit for a cool call and a cool conversation. Jesse from the NSCA, we appreciate all you do to support uh, coaches, the coaching profession, the NBA coaches, and everyone else. Um, to everyone listening in, we appreciate you being with us today. And a special thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hi, coaches. This is Mike Caro, longtime college strength and conditioning coach, now working on the tactical side of the profession. The NSCA Coaching Podcast brings highlights from all areas of our growing field to help you navigate your coaching path. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.